Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists and food makers, farmers, authors and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good weekend to you food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio and a very happy Passover. I hope that it's joyous and delicious and that you are with family and friends and savoring the season. Spring is hopefully almost here. The birds are chirping and the flowers will start blooming and the weather will turn warm. And it is time to celebrate. So I have delicious inspiration in your radio today on lots of sweet things. Recipes and tips for marvelous meals are shared on this show. This hour, you'll gain ideas for how to eat well, how to live well, because this show is for people who love to cook or love to eat, I like to say. Uh, you could be either. We could definitely be friends. And each week, I'll tell you about my favorite finds and wines and recipes and authors, foods, restaurants, gadgets, and more. Because you will hear from distinguished authors, artisans, and chefs on this show, mixologists, wine aficionados, oh, and lots more culinary inspiration to come. And we always dish. It's my goal that you will become a more confident cook. So I hope you'll visit chefjamie.com where I'm always serving up seconds. And you'll find my daily dish on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. I like to kick off the show with a tutorial of sorts. One that makes you the best cook you know. Or better yet, a brilliant baker. But for this technique, you can be a non-baker. Really, it's for everyone who has a sweet tooth, this next conversation. And if you love cake, well, then don't touch your dial. Light, airy, no guilt cake. Sounds good, right? Because it's just too light and lovely to have calories, in my opinion. I've decided that the best way to satiate my sweet tooth for spring is to bake and reap the rewards of my work. That way, the gratification is so much better. So, just a couple of days ago, I made an angel food cake because it felt quintessential spring. And for avid bakers, spare egg whites are a way of life. After you make pudding or custard or ice cream base, those leftover egg whites can really start to pile up. You save them, right? Okay, good. And for those of you that might not bake often, no worries in separating an egg. And you can always add an extra yolk to your morning scramble. Makes it richer and more delicious. Um, But you will just make this angel food cake with fresh eggs, cracked and separated. Now, in my opinion, angel food cake is something to marvel at. It's a dessert that's airy and light and lean, but it's flavorful enough to stand on its own, whether you serve it naked with fresh fruit, a dollop of whipped cream, you could even do a drizzle of ganache. As far as I'm concerned, you could do anything on angel food cake. Now, Americans have been whipping up angel food cake since the 1840s. It's actually categorized as a sponge cake. It's pillowy soft. It should be light as cotton candy and just as tender, too. And its sweetness, sweetness rather, is tempered by a generous spoonful of salt. 
And the toasted flavor of its lightly browned crust, plus that aromatic dose of vanilla, makes it the sort of cake that's really worthy of your time in the kitchen. And um, days of that stolen slice late at night or the sweet treat for breakfast because you just can't help yourself. So recipes for angel food cake always start with egg whites. They're whisked until foamy and light and then sugar is spooned in a little at a time. The whipping and sugar sprinkling continue. It's a foolproof method, by the way. It just takes some patience. And you get this billowy meringue that holds peaks. Now, that foam or billowy meringue is referred to as a French meringue, and it's the airiest of all the styles. And by the way, the work is accomplished by your electric mixer. Oh, yay. So let's talk ingredients if we could. Egg whites play an integral role in the structure of an angel food cake. And egg whites are composed of many proteins that aid in creating a voluminous cake. Now, the whites are accented by the help of cream of tartar, which is an acidic salt that adjusts the pH of the egg whites so the proteins will be more soluble. And I can tell you from experience, if you don't use cream of tartar, your cake will not reach its maximum volume. Now, there's another interesting point about cream of tartar, and that is that it decolorizes the pigment in the flour, which gives the final cake that bright white color. Who knew, right? That's pretty cool. And as for flour, the flour plays an important role in the texture, the structure, and the elasticity of an angel food cake. So cake flour is often called for, although you can make an angel food cake with all-purpose flour. Cake flour is just lighter and tends to keep the batter light. And you will need sugar, Because angel food cake really only has a few ingredients, the sugar functions as a sweetener, a stabilizer, and a tenderizer. And here's a very important tip. Please listen closely. When it comes to baking your first or your 31st angel food cake, cooling the cake upside down is the only way to go. You harness the power of gravity to stretch rather than compress the cake's tender crumb. That is why it is immensely important not, and I repeat, not to use a nonstick pan. If you use a nonstick pan, the cake will go splat. The nonstick properties don't allow the cake to hold on to the sides when you turn it upside down. So you just need a standard angel food cake pan that is not nonstick. And you don't need to invest in an expensive one uh, because a standard one should give you the results that you're looking for. Now, I recommend that you stick with a standard aluminum tube pan. That's what angel food cake is usually made in, about 10 inches across the top and four inches deep. And it has a removable bottom so that you can pluck out the cake when it's cool. And you want to wash and dry the pan if you buy a new one before you use it. It cannot have any residual grease or any dirt left in it when you make an angel food cake. Now, you could make an angel food cake in a bunt pan as well. The fluted sides make releasing the cake a little more 
difficult. The center tube in a tube pan allows the cake batter to rise high and it allows it to release better and it allows it to crawl up the sides and rise. And I think a tube pan is the way to go. Now, I happen to love the rustic appearance of the top golden crust of an angel food cake, but you can pile in all kinds of fresh berries that cascade from the center. And when you go to cut it, please use a serrated knife to keep the cake from compressing. But whether or not you've ever made angel food cake before, I hope you'll try your hand at it because it really is a blissful treat. And for my mastered recipe for angel food cake, please email me, jamie, J-A-M-I-E at chefjamie.com because I will gladly share it with you. All right. And now it's time for food news. That's news you can use, as I like to say, or definitely essential dinner party conversation. This is too fun, right? Did you know that Cup of Noodles launched a breakfast ramen? That's true, in fact. If anyone, you know that ramen is truly versatile, whether morning, noon, or night, right? So for that easy, quick fix or to stave off your hunger, Cup of Noodles has introduced a breakfast flavor of ramen, in fact, so that you can keep your plate full. It's available now, a limited edition, and I haven't tasted it, but I'd love to know how it pairs up to a breakfast burrito. The new Cup of Noodles breakfast flavor available for $1.18. Oh yeah, let me know how it is, would you? Because I can't wait to dish about it. And coming up, we have a full plate. We are eating to extinction. Yes, the New York Times bestseller is here. Dan Saladino, for more than a decade, he traveled the world recording stories of foods at risk of extinction. You're going to want to hear about his travels. Yes, Dan Saladino is here. There is so much deliciousness on your plate. Don't touch your dial. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Be right back. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. As you've heard me say before, we do have the finest culinary thinkers on this show, and this gentleman is the most glorious example. It's fascinating, insightful, and thought-provoking. A number one new release, Amazon Editor's Pick, and just named a New York Times Book Review Editor's Choice. Dan Saladino's Eating to Extinction is a deep dive into the world's vanishing foods and why it matters. And oh, this is an important book. 
Over the past several decades, globalization has homogenized what we eat. Of the roughly 6,000 different plants once consumed by human beings, I have learned from Dan and reading, just three of them, rice, wheat, and corn, now provide 50% of all of our calories. So the distinguished broadcaster Dan Saladino, renowned food journalist who has worked at the BBC for more than 25 years, decided he needed to let us know. He has traveled the world recording stories of foods at risk of extinction, and his work has been recognized by the James Beard Foundation, the Guild of Food Writers, and the Fortnum and Mason Food and Drink Awards. And this book is extraordinary. It is a must read with tremendous praise. And I cannot tell you how grateful and honored I am to have Dan Saladino live with us. Dan, what an absolute pleasure. Thank you for being here and congratulations on the success of the book thus far. Thank you very much, Jamie. It's great to be with you on the <laughs> Thank show. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, well, well-deserved praise, by the way. Um, I'll be very forthright. I'm about halfway through the book. It's captivating. And I wonder if, and maybe an inappropriate question, but albeit very honest, how worried should we be for my young son and future generations? I feel like we have to start there. Mm. And I think that's absolutely right, because on the, on the face of it, there doesn't appear to be uh, an emergency. Many of us are fortunate enough to be surrounded by uh, a seemingly abundance of, of food and huge mm-hmm. amounts of choice. Mm-hmm. However, I think it is future generations who we need to be thinking about, because that success story that we've built really in the last 50 or 60 years in terms of the amount, the quantity of calories we're producing has come at a cost. And that cost is uh, diversity, the uh, range of, of different food sources that we are now depending on. And you mentioned in the introduction the 6,000 plants that humans have eaten over time. Now we depend on just nine, of which just three, that's Hmm. wheat, rice, and maize, uh, supply more than 50% of the world's calories. And and, and I I think of it almost as if uh, it's like an investor's portfolio, that we're putting our our future investment all into a relatively small number of... um, uh, Well, yeah, into a really tiny portfolio. Sure. Uh, and, And with diversity comes a safety net, comes, comes options, come, comes uh, uh, you know, choices for the future. But also, um, just to finish off why this matters, that food system that we've built on a relatively small number of crops has come at a high price for the planet because of the amount of energy and chemicals it, it takes to produce those crops and also our health. And I, you know, I think there's an argument to me made that our, our physical health has really uh, is, is starting to suffer in many cases because of the kinds of foods that this uh, system creates. No, no doubt. I mean, we see that in uh, obesity in the U.S. We see that in the rise and the influx of food allergies, of uh, health concerns, right, of the growing number of sick I am fascinated to read your book because I I do, I think about the news stories that correlate to food where we see them and, you know, they they make you think for a moment and then we go back to our ways. I think it's so interesting that you 
relate or use the analogy of a portfolio because we know that the key word to investing is always diversify, right? But we are we we are with so many limits in the diversification as you talk about in the book of the world's food sources. I thought it was absolutely amazing to realize from your prose that the source of the world's food seeds is in the hands of four major mega corporations. That that's a monopoly, is it not? Well, it's it's certainly a, a really high concentration of power in a relatively small number of players in something that is so crucial to feeding the world. And in a sense that is just one example of many in which there's been consolidation throughout the world of various different food industries. So I also cite in that list of concentration of power that one in four beers um, around, dr- drunk around the world is brewed by one uh, major company. Obviously, it has multi- many, many different brands, but sure. it's one big company. More than 50% of the world's cheeses are made with the starter culture or the enzymes produced by one single company. So I, I, you know, I, I do think that that is a risky scenario to have when so much depends on so few. Yes. And also, you mentioned the importance of diversity, and I think the best way to illustrate that is a is now a relatively well known story of the bananas. So that most of the world's globally traded bananas are one type, and that's the Cavendish. But the Cavendish is now really struggling globally. In, in many parts of the world because of a fungal disease called Panama disease, or TR4, which means that once in the soil, the disease makes it impossible uh, to grow bananas of that, of that type. And again, these are effectively, think of them as clones. So okay. you take the suckers from one plant, and then they produce another um, series of plants. And so they are genetically really uniform, which we are seeing the consequences of in this disease spread of disease now it might not be as urgent in other crops but the same process is happening in that genetic uniformity because we've gone for the highest yielding plants is causing risk but we are also losing cultural um, diversity Mm. We're, we're losing flavors we're losing the wonders and the beauty of food and its diversity created over thousands of years. Yes. And so that's what I'm trying to get across in the book with, by telling the stories yes. of, of endangered foods. Yes. And, and I love that you tell the stories because they give a deeper meaning to the fact that you're not just looking at the fear factor of it. It's about the culture, as you talk about, the pleasure, the history, the geography, the craft of so many of these foods and the genetic biodiversity, as you talk about, of the future of our planet depends on it. Okay, Dan, we need to take a quick break. If you'll please stay with us. I love the soul searching that you do and the relationships that you make. And no doubt it matters more than ever. We are dishing with Dan Saladino on eating to extinction. And there's more right after this.
We're back, and oh, you have such good taste. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. The prominent broadcaster, Dan Saladino, with more than 25 years at the BBC, is sharing his path-breaking tour of the world's vanishing foods. This is a work of staggering importance, as it is quoted on the book, and you need to hear this conversation. Go back for a moment for me, please, Dan. Talk about the threat to our health. And again, I, I, I try and use some really big um, uh, spans of time in the book. So, for example, I, you know, I refer to the three billion years in which it's taken uh, our planet to create the diversity, the abundance of, of biodiversity, as, as you say, around us. Um, and I think that needs to be remembered, how long it took for nature to create such um, genetic diversity, both in terms of plants and also animals. Um, but I also talk about the history of human beings, which, again, yes. you can t- take different timelines there of our human ancestors, but you know, 2 million years, a million years, and then 300,000 years of Homo sapiens, 12,000 years of farming. And so you see that the industrial food system that we've created in just over a century, 150 years, it's a blip. And it's a, I, I, this is why I say in the book, it's almost as if we're living through one big experiment. And in a sense, we've created this huge amount of calories, as I mentioned, after, particularly after the Second World War. Yes. But we don't really know where this is taking us because it's such a novel uh, experience. And our most successful lifestyle to date was as hunter-gatherers. If you look at modern hunter-gatherers, and there are the Hadza, who I visited for the book in, in uh, eastern Tanzania in East Africa. Oh, the, hun- the honey. The, had- the Hadza, they, they um, use a, a bird to help them find honey in yes. trees. And yes. they have a conversation with the bird. But in terms of their diet, and honey is their number one favorite food, but in terms of their potential menu, it consists of 800 different plant and animal species. And which is absolutely, mine, mine comes nowhere close to that. Um, but also, when people, when, when archaeologists find bog bodies that have been preserved in certain conditions, and so you can actually look at what's inside their stomachs, we also find a huge diversity of seeds. So all the evidence points to our, the success of our species over time has been dependent on a diverse diet. Sure. And yet we, in recent years, have narrowed that down. And there are many different ways in which we can think about uh, why that um, might cause ill health. One is the emerging science of the gut microbiome. So that's the trillions of microbes that we all host in our guts. And we now know that the more diverse foods we eat, the more diverse the microbes in our guts, the more beneficial that is for our physical and mental health. There's so much we don't know. This is all so complex, but diversity has been part of our food story for thousands of years and the worry is that we have we are reducing that diversity i i think this is such important conversation if you've just tuned in you're late it is a new york times editor's pick it is becoming a a world-renowned piece of prose and one that is necessary to read Uh, It's also a fascinating, fabulous read entitled Eating to Extinction. It is the new release from Dan Saladino, the BBC food journalist with 25 years of success. 
uh, and uh, extraordinary world recording stories over all those years, bringing us information from the front lines, as I'd like to call it. I want to tell more stories. I'd like you to, Dan, but I want to take a step back. I would love to know what prompted you to take this deeper dive? Was it a particular story? Was it over those 25 years that you've learned so much to realize that we needed to have this conversation? I really see the starting point for my interest in particularly endangered food and food diversity uh, around 15 years ago, which is when I traveled to Sicily to make a radio program about the citrus harvest on the east side of the island, around Mount Etna. And I was there because I thought I would be telling a, a celebratory story um, uh-huh. of, of this wonderful fruit that was being picked by farmers. And I arrived and they were telling me, in some cases, it was going to be the last harvest uh-huh. um, for their small-scale family farms. And the reason being that there was so much more cheaper citrus that's coming in from different parts of the world, including Spain. And so these Sicilian farmers who's history on the island of growing and harvesting citrus um, goes back a thousand years and it's shaped their identity it's shaped the landscape and here I was having a conversation with somebody who was saying that they were going to leave the fruit on the trees next year Mm. I discovered that it was then um, being added to an online catalogue of the world's most endangered foods created by the slow food movement based in Italy and this contains 5,000 foods from 130 different countries. And I I started to look at this list and these little stories of different food traditions from around the world and different types of foods, and they were all disappearing. And I fell in love with these stories because each one of these foods took me to a different part of the world. It showed me how ingenious our ancestors had been as farmers Mm. and cooks, Mm. and also explained to me that there were pressures on these traditional foods And what, on the face of it, at that time, struck me as beautiful stories of food traditions. In writing the book, I really started to join the dots and realize there was a really important, big, global story to tell about how much change had happened in such a short amount of time in the way the world feeds itself and how it farms. And that's how the book came into existence. And I Mm. had to choose a relatively small number of books from the list of 5,000 documented endangered foods, and in the book, um, 34 specific stories and 34 chapters are there of different endangered foods. Yes. I could have, I could have featured so many more. <laughs> there, there's three more books in the works, I hope, because this is of the utmost importance. I loved reading uh, that there is some hope in it, Dan. I love the story of, uh, is it Murnong? Is that how you pronounce it? Mm, the the root it is, vegetable. It is of uh, Australia that is actually uh, undergoing a revival, right? So we, we see some hope. Give us, give us a story of hope, if you would. Yeah, well, that, that particular one is, is fascinating because it's right at the beginning of the book when I'm talking about wild foods and some of these ancient traditions. And in the case of Murnong, um, we know that people um, first inhabited Australia, which is where this um, root can be found, otherwise known as the yam daisy, people inhabited uh, Australia 60,000 years ago. Hmm. And it's possible that over the last 10, 20, 30,000 years, perhaps, they had a really complex and sophisticated food system in which this um, quite delicate root buried underground 
uh, quite sweet tasting, uh, and it could be found across the landscape of southern Australia. It was their, one of their major sources of energy, and you know, it was a, it's a really good, nutritious source of carbohydrate. Um, and many other nutrients as well. But unfortunately, when the Europeans arrived 300 years ago, they introduced sheep and cattle, and those animals ate their way across the landscape and pretty much decimated this wild food source for the indigenous um, Aboriginal people. And so it's a story and a theme that threads through the book of one power uh, or one culture uh, overwhelming another, and displacing a, a food culture and a food system, and in fact the people themselves. But as you say, there's a, a threaded through the book are many, many positive stories. In fact, it was only possible for me to tell these stories because there was somebody out there in the world who was pretty much dedicating their working lives to saving these foods. It was a, a passion that I found in every part of the world that I traveled to. And in the case of Murnong, the Yamdezi um, chefs, some of the most high-profile chefs in Australia were working with um, Aboriginal people, with community gardens, to bring back this lost plant. And for that reason, it's now back in the consciousness of people in Australia, and it's putting people back in contact with um, how people survived in Australia over thousands and thousands of years. And so who knows? It could be an important food of the future. It is my great honor to have had you on the radio. And I hope and I know there are so many stories to tell that there will be uh, three more books in the future uh, that you will share with us on the world's rarest foods and why we need to save them. Uh, This is the most important read. It is entitled Eating to Extinction. Please get it, read it, do your part, make a difference. Written by Dan Saladino, a BBC food journalist of 25 years, an extraordinary award-winning journalist, in fact, who is changing the way we think about food. Uh, A roadmap to a food system that is healthier and more robust and richer in flavor and meaning for generations and generations to come. Uh, What an important book, Dan. And thank you for the honor of sharing it here. I truly appreciate it. Please stay safe and well in your journeys and and continue to bring us insight on the food front. You are so valuable to to the food system. Yeah, I I truly appreciate it. Thanks so much, Jamie, and to all your listeners as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We're playing with fire today, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. He's back. The world's best grilling guru, Stephen Reichlin, is here. The James Beard Award-winning, New York Times best-selling 31 cookbooks and running. The author and host of multiple acclaimed PBS cooking shows who has shaped the country's fixation with live fire cooking. And this time, he's here to help you master brisket. In his latest book, The Brisket Chronicles, he's focusing on just one cut of beef and what he calls the most epic cut. So it's time to light up the grill, fire up that smoker, and get your brisket on because Stephen Reichlin is here. Hi, Stephen. I'm glad to have you back. How are you? Jamie, it is such a pleasure (laughs) to speak with you. Thank you. I'm delighted. Okay. 
Um, when you say brisket, well, when you say it, people come running. When I say it, they mosey a little bit, but they definitely come, <laughs> I will say. It does spark hunger, as you mentioned in the book. It makes your mouth water. So why a single subject book? Is, is brisket that most requested question to master on the barbecue you get? Well, first of all, brisket is the Mount Everest of barbecue. Yes. And, uh, you know, if you can master a brisket, you can barbecue anything. And, uh, and brisket, you know, people speak of brisket masters uh, like Aaron Franklin and Austin in reverential terms. Um, it is challenging, but it's eminently doable, as I try and show in this book. But barbecue is only the tip of the brisket iceberg. Uh, if you think about deli favorites, you know, mm. uh, pastrami starts as brisket. Uh, Irish corned beef starts as brisket. Uh, Italian bolito misto starts as brisket. Vietnamese pho, that wonderful beef noodle soup, starts as brisket. So brisket is one of those foods that is enjoyed and beloved throughout the world. It is, and, and a lot of ethnic influence. I mean, my extraordinary Jewish mother, who's a brilliant cook, makes a brilliant brisket. And very different than anything grilled. Lots of caramelized onions and beef broth and, you know, the secret of brown sugar and all that goodness. And I love that you sort of run the gamut of recipes and inspiration in the book from lots of different uh, paths and, uh, you know, styles of cooking as well. Before we get to the recipes, though, how do you choose the right brisket? And I did read, and I know you are specific, a quarter inch of fat is necessary no matter what, right? You bet, yeah, because... Remember, in general, you're going to be cooking brisket low and slow. That is at a low heat for a long period of time. And that melting fat will help keep it moist during the cooking process. Okay, good. But when you choose one, there are lots of choices today on brisket. Well, there are. And you're two, I mean, first of all, you can go choice or prime. And uh, choice brisket is uh, a little bit more affordable. Prime brisket, a little pricier, but better marbled. Both will give you excellent results, precisely because you're cooking them for so long. Uh, but your big choice is going to be whether to buy a whole packer brisket, which is the entire two muscles that comprise a brisket, tipping the scales at around 12 or 15 pounds, or whether you're going to buy a brisket flat, which is the leaner of the two brisket muscles, um, looking at three to six pounds, and the brisket flat typically is what you find at a supermarket. So if you're a newcomer to the world of brisket, brisket flat is a, way, uh, a great way to, uh, to get started. Yeah, to master it. Although 12 to 15 pounds of hunk of meat on the grill, that'll definitely draw my friends in. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's uh, not for without reason that uh, I call it the holy grail of barbecue. Exactly. So I would assume that your favorite method of cooking is smoking because you make a brilliant smoke ring and the flavor is unbelievable. You can steam, braise, stew, grill. Give us a, a couple of methods to master, please. Where should we start? Well, okay. Barbecuing, uh, you know, great for barbecued brisket. That's pretty indispensable if you've got a, a backyard to do it in. Uh, braising is a great way to cook brisket if you are apartment-bound or condo-bound and don't have access to a grill. Right. Um, uh, b b boiling, you know, I mean, boiling, what could be least glamorous and less glamorous than boiling, but uh, uh, gosh, Vietnamese uh, beef noodle soup, there's a brisket ramen in the oh, book. Yes, I uh, saw that. There's a uh, Vietnamese beef noodle soup in a hurry. Boiled brisket is, uh, there, there's a terrific dish down here in Miami 
called vaca frita, and it starts with a braised or boiled brisket that you shred, and then you f- you fry those shreds in oil with onion and garlic, and uh, it's a classic Cuban dish, and uh, it's really amazing. And see, here we are talking about brisket, and we've gone around the world again. Yes, of course, and you can season it f- with flavor from around the world. What is your favorite way, going back to the grill, if we're going to season the brisket, and if we're going to smoke What's the best wood? Well, uh, you know, for seasoning, I like what in the trade is called a Dalmatian rub. It's equal parts coarse sea salt and cracked black peppercorns. It's uh, speckled black like a Dalmatian. And the reason I love a Dalmatian rub for brisket is it gives you a wonderful, crisp, crunchy, salty, smoky bark. That's the outside crust. But it really kind of keeps the focus of the brisket on the meat. Uh, you know, it doesn't camouflage it with a lot of extravagant spicing. The new book release from America's most beloved grilling guru. He is Stephen Reichlin, and the book is called The Brisket Chronicles, How to Barbecue, Braise, Smoke, and Cure the World's Most Epic Cut of Meat. So take your love for brisket to the next level with some of the best recipes we've seen yet from Stephen. It's always a pleasure, Stephen. I hope our paths cross again soon. And thank you for making me hungry. Well, me too. Jamie, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you do you. such a great job. Thank you. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of truly delicious conversation. And I hope that you thought so. I will leave you with my last bite for the hour, my last ounce or tidbit of gastronomic inspiration, as I like to call it. I love coconut, just for the record. Do you? My go-to cookie at the holidays is a super simple three-ingredient macaroon. Not the French style, but rather the coconut base. Uh, You can actually air fry them if you didn't know. I share a recipe for air fried or oven baked, and then I dip them in bittersweet chocolate and... I indulge or I gift them or sometimes I crumble them over ice cream or a baked apple and sometimes I eat them for breakfast because coconut is a fruit, right? They are three-ingredient coconut macaroons. They're gluten-free, vegetarian, a snap to make, and super scrumptious. And so I will post the recipe on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram on my social pages at Chef Jamie Gwen. Please check it out and let me know how your macaroons turn out. I will meet you here next weekend when I promise lots more fabulous food. I hope you stay healthy. I thank you for listening. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off and I hope you continue to eat well. Well,